Howdy, gang. So uh, two things I want to say in follow-up to Mark's very kind introduction. First off, uh, I want to apologize on behalf of my country. I know we've been making <laughs> ourselves look like a bit of an ass. I just want to say this. Uh, statistically speaking, about 40% uh, of Americans are registered Republican primary voters. Of those, uh, only about 19% voted in the primaries this year. It was a quite low turnout. Of those, 35% voted for the candidate who's now the Republican nominee. And so before you judge all of our country, <laughs> I'd like you to remember these numbers. Um, all right. Now, that being said, also, did you know the United Kingdom has invaded every country on the planet except seven? <laughs> every single one, but seven. Yeah. So. <laughs> Get to work. Come on. <laughs> what is the queen doing? All right. If I remember correctly, the best place to stand is where Rory stood, because that's where you get the most light. Is this, can you see me pretty well here? All right, I'll try and stay in this, in this general region. 99% of the time when I speak, I have my slides online for you to all follow along. This is one of those unusual cases where I don't. I will by the end of the day, uh, and I'll share that link via the BOS 2016 hashtag on Twitter. Uh, that being said, if there's a couple of URLs that I've put in bit.ly here for you all so that you can follow along. Mark, I, I think this is a very unique topic that you asked me to speak about. And it's one that, uh, that I find quite interesting. He, he asked me, what are things that you regret? What are things that you would change about the past? And I decided I I did want to cover that. I think that's a very important topic. But I also wanted to talk about things that I would keep the same, decisions that I'm glad I made, that I'm glad Moz made, and things that I don't know yet, things that have yet to be discovered. And I think all three of these can prove interesting. Before we get into things, what I want to do is for those of you, I think you know, uh, a fair few of you are familiar with Moz. Can you raise your hand if you're? Very familiar with Moz? OK, so probably about after. I'll give a, a, a less than five minute background for the rest of you. In 2001, I dropped out of college at the University of Washington and started working with my mom, Jillian, who had been working for 20 years as an independent marketing consultant. Uh, she had been doing things like business cards and letterheads and logos, yellow page ads, right, pre-internet. And her clients started needing websites. So in high school, I had designed and built a few websites in Microsoft front page, and I started building a little bit here and there in PHP and Dreamweaver. And I dropped out of school to do that full time with her. I was not a great web designer or web developer in any sense. And my mom and I actually went deeply into debt. We went about $150,000 into debt uh, through to the early part of 2005 when we stopped being able to make minimum payments on that debt. So if you, have, if you owe a credit card a lot of money and you can't pay them the minimum that you owe them in a month, you can guess what happens. Your interest rate suddenly spikes up and the penalties accrue. And by the middle of 2005, we were $500,000 in debt, which was no fun, um, no fun. I had uh, debt collectors coming to the office with gold chains looking for me and knocking on 
Geraldine's door. I was living with Geraldine, my wife, who's up, up front here, uh, who's a travel writer. And she, at the time, was working at Starbucks corporate, making enough money so that we could pay the rent uh, and the bills. However, in 2004, 2005, we started transitioning. I had started a blog called seomaz.org, and that blog was centered around making the practice of SEO transparent. For those of you who don't know, SEO, or search engine optimization, is something that, until that time, had been, well, I wouldn't say incredibly secretive, but many, many practitioners, and certainly the search engines themselves, were far less transparent than they are today about those practices. It was frustrating and incredibly challenging to learn. I hated that about SEO, and I wanted to change it. Uh, and that's where the idea for SEO Moz came about. Uh, Moz, by the way, taken from the open source movements around things like DMoz, right, the directory, open directory project, uh, and Chef Moz at the time, which is a big open source recipe site, and Matt Moz, and a bunch of others. All of them kind of fell by the wayside, except for Moz. So. Uh, that proved all right. In 2000, fast forward a little bit, we made some real money, had some success consulting, were able to pay down those debts, and in 2007, we tried an experiment. We had built up a bunch of software tools that we used internally ourselves as consultants, and we thought, we want to make these available to other professional marketers on the web, but we knew we didn't have the bandwidth to support them, and so we put up a, a paywall. We basically had a PayPal sign-in. You had to PayPal us $29 or $39 a month uh, in early 2007 in order to get access to the tools we'd built for our own consulting. And that business took off like a rocket. By the middle of the year, July of that year, it was half of our revenue. So we did uh, just about $900,000 in revenue total in 2007, and half of that was from consulting, the other half was from software. That same year, a couple investors reached out to us, a, um, a private angel investor in Seattle named Kelly Smith, who ran a, a firm called Curious Office, and Michelle Goldberg from Ignition Partners. Ignition was, at the time, a big early stage investor in Seattle. Now they're more mid and late stage. Um, and we raised $1.1 million uh, and used that to build an index of the web so that we could replicate kind of the back end of Google's link graph and show people you know, true kind of page rank numbers and link data and all these kinds of things. Uh, in fact, uh, someone I worked very closely with on Open Site Explorer, which many of you are probably familiar with, is also in this room, uh, Jamie Seaforth in back there. And uh, she's still with us at Moz today, which is, which is fantastic. Okay, so now you have a, sorry? And, and hopefully still tomorrow, unless I say something wrong. No pressure, Rand. Uh, the next few years, we, we had tremendous growth. So what, one of the tough things that happened in 2007 uh, was that Jillian, my mom, was asked to step down as CEO by our investors. Basically, one of the conditions of this investment was that I become the CEO. And so uh, I remember we had a very long, uh, awkward conversation with each other uh, about that. And I took over as CEO uh, and retained that role until early 2014. So for, for about seven years. Uh, during that time, Moz had tremendous growth, 100% year over year for six years in a row. And then uh, all the way up, so basically our revenue would have been uh, one, let's see, 1.1 million in software in 2008, uh, then 3.1, 4.1, 4.2, 4.3, 4.4, 4.5, 4.6, 4.7, 4.8, 4.9, 4.10, 4.11, 4.12, 4.13, 4.14, 4.15
And then growth started flattening out. I think it was 29.1 uh, in 2014. And then 34, 35 last year. It's going to, uh, sorry, maybe a little more than that, 37. This year, I think, will be around $43 million. So Moz is a, a moderately successful you know, SaaS software company by venture capital standards. I think by normal human standards, you go, that's pretty awesome. But when you have investors, right, venture capital, and you, as, as Nick from Datasift you know, pointed out yesterday, the growth expectations are very different, dramatically different. In 2014, uh, well, 2013, uh, I suffered a deep bout with depression. Probably several of you in this room have read my blog posts about that. Um, I've, I've tried to be very public about it because I think that it's a topic uh, that too many folks, particularly men and particularly entrepreneurs, don't talk about because they feel it's a weakness and not a strength. And so I've tried to be very public uh, about that in the hopes of making that a little bit more of an open topic. Um, in 2014, the beginning of the year, I stepped down as CEO and promoted our longtime chief operating officer, Sarah Bird, to the role, a role that she holds today. Uh, and she's done a terrific job turning things around from some of the mistakes that I made, particularly on a big product launch that we had at the end of 2013. Okay, so now you have kind of a basic understanding of who Moz is. I'm gonna walk you through some of the things that I'd change, some of the things I'd keep the same, some of the things I don't know yet. First off, that, that is a real photo of me. That's what I look like if I shaved my beard right now. I'm serious, it's pretty amazing what a beard can do for a gentleman. Uh, no. This is, this is, this is me in high school. Hey, you can still, same pose. Uh, <laughs> this is me in high school, uh, probably 1996, 97. And one of, the, one of the big regrets I have is I, I learned to code a little bit. But I think learn to code is actually misleading advice for someone who's going to run a software engineering company. I think the real advice and the thing that I wish I could have done is spent a true number of years becoming a software engineer. There's a number of frustrations that I have around this. One of the biggest ones uh, is that I have a very hard time hiring and identifying great engineers, particularly early in my career. Later in my career, when we had a good bevy of engineers on board, it's much easier because those folks can help support. But early on, I, I made plenty of mistakes in hiring, in, including in leadership roles and in junior roles, all across the board. Second big thing that's been really challenging, I think more emotionally challenging and challenging for my own personal psyche than, than just for the business is that I have a hard time calling uh, BS, for lack of a better word, on any type of estimate, right? So I don't know when an engineer or a team of engineers, particularly early in my career, right, when Moz is just a few engineers and me and a couple other folks, I did not, I was not able to say, Yes, that seems like a reasonable estimate. That's a reasonable amount of time to get this thing done. Uh, that seems like a good approach and an intelligent way to go about things. I, I had to rely on something that I had no personal knowledge of, and that was very tough. In nearly every aspect, other aspect of the business, I have done some of that work, whether it's finance or HR or marketing or customer service or office management or hiring or you name it, right? I, I've done all those forms of work except this one, which is core to the company. This is me with a considerable beard. This is uh, 
probably during one of the deepest parts of, of the depression that I mentioned that I, I had earlier. Um, and I grew out my beard for a long time despite looking really terrible. Um, oof, that's, that's rough. Thank God for mustache wax uh, and for, for beard trimmers. Uh, one of the other things that I never did that I really regret is that I never spent time at any other technology companies or software startups. And I think this is advice that I would give to other entrepreneurs intently, which is before you go out on your own journey, try and spend, e even if it's a year, try and spend a year somewhere else. Could be somewhere you admire, could even be somewhere you hate. But you'll have a perspective and you'll bring an understanding of things that you do love and want to copy and keep the same and things that you don't. One of the things that was very frustrating at Moz is that I had no context. Everything that we did, we were doing for the very first time. We were learning for that first time. I, I have a deep understanding now of why investors love second and third time and fourth time entrepreneurs, right? They've seen this rodeo before. They know how the horse is going to buck. That, that is a powerful skill. This is uh, Gianluca Fiorelli. For those of you who don't know him, he's been a, a longtime Moz customer, probably one of the most passionate supporters of Moz. Um, and he hosted Geraldine and I last year in, in Valencia, which uh, we're actually going to his conference again tomorrow morning. Uh, and I think one of the things that we have noticed, and, and this is actually something that uh, has now been quantified by a number of firms. I, I'll, ha I'll have a link to share with you in, in the post that I do this afternoon. Uh, some research showing that folks who commented on blog posts in the SaaS world tended to have dramatically higher conversion and retention rates uh, versus cohorts that were not engaged uh, in the community around the website. And this is true for Moz as well. So some of our best customers are the ones who are most engaged with us and the ones who've engaged with us prior to signing up. Right? They've commented on the blog for years. Maybe they've even posted uh, items of their own. It turns out that's a great predictor of a successful long-term customer. And for those of you not familiar with the software as a service or subscription uh, business world, retention is essentially the key metric. Retention is how most of your valuation growth curve is going to be determined. Uh, and Moz has always struggled with a relatively high churn rate, one of the reasons being we have no onboarding. If you sign up for Moz today, you'll get a series of kind of emails, but you're not going to get someone reaching out and saying, hi, I'm Rand for Moz, and I'm your personal you know, assistant, and if you have any issues, you, know, you can come talk to me, all that kind of thing. I think there might be a question here. Yes? Uh, yeah, so Moz today is, I think we are, Jamie, correct me if I'm wrong, 6.3, 6.4% on Pro, which is our largest product which has about 22,000 subscribers and is about 85, 86% of our overall revenue. Uh, so six point, that's 6.3% 6 monthly churn. So essentially, if you, if you do the math out on that, uh, in two years, assuming that no one else signed up for Moz, in two years, that product would have no revenue, right? Because all of those customers would have churned out. Investors don't particularly like that. Entrepreneurs don't like that either. <laughs> it's, uh, that's no fun. Number four, these are, uh, these are my investors. You can tell I, I work with uh, the Big Lebowski over on the right here. That's actually, that's Brad Feld. I think he's probably a cousin of Mark's, uh, judging from the shirt choices. And uh, uh, on the left is, sorry, on my left. Yeah, you're a left too. That's Brad. 
on my right, uh, that's Michelle Goldberg and her, her husband, um, also named Brad. But uh, Michelle and Brad are two of the kindest, nicest, most empathetic people that you will ever find in the investment world, um, especially the, the venture capital world. And I, I've been thrilled to have them as investors. I, I wouldn't change that for the world. What I would change is that I think, especially many of the times when we were, I would say, going off the path, they identified that and they very subtly nudged me at board meetings and in phone calls that we'd have that maybe I wanted to rethink some of the strategy that we were taking. And I did not listen. And one of the things that I, I wish I could do is ask them to be a little tougher, a little harsher with me in terms of feedback. I, I remember very distinctly a morning, Sarah and I, Sarah, my, who was my CEO now, uh, was my COO, now is my CEO, uh, we flew out to Boulder together, which is where Brad is based with Foundry Group. Flew out to Boulder, um, and we had breakfast at this uh, little cafe, and I said, Brad, will you just effing tell me what to do? Just tell me what to do. And he sort of said, well, I, I usually don't like to do that, but okay, okay, I'll just tell you what to do uh, and, and what the right path is. And I remember I gave him a really hard time. We were walking back after that breakfast and I said, why, why wasn't this something you could do before? Why didn't you do this? And he, he apologized. He said that you know, he wished he had, he felt like it wasn't the right time. Um, that's, that's a regret of mine, and I think a regret of his as well. Number five, so in, in many markets, most of you are probably familiar with the lean startup and the idea of a, a minimum viable product, right? I hate the minimum viable product. At least in many, many markets, I, I hate the minimum viable product, and here's why. Because many, many folks who build software focus on the word minimum. They think it means build the smallest thing that will actually just barely work, and then test that. But in fact, in a market where you have a lot of competitors, I, I will make sure that this is online, beautiful, you know, JPEG, that you can, GIF that you can download. Uh, in a market with, with many competitors, many of whom have a lot of the features, where people are already using them, and you're essentially trying to take market share from those competitors or change people's behaviors, right, to switch to a different product, I think you need something that is multiple times better than what they're already doing uh, in order to have that effect. I don't think it's good enough to just be a little bit better or to have something that barely works and is competitive in this field. I think you have to be significantly better. And actually, uh, there was a great post from Intercom. This is a, a PDF that you'll have to enter your email in order to get the download for it, but I put it in here. It's called Jobs to be Done. And uh, in Jobs to be Done, Intercom talks about what they call, they call it the 9x effect, right? Essentially that happy consumers are overvaluing the product that they already have by many multiples. They think it does everything they want to do, and so why would they switch away from something they already know and love, right? The status quo bias in here, the gains and loss theory, a lot of the psychological nudges and impacts that Rory Sutherland talked about yesterday, right? And so in order to be innovative, in order to get people over this threshold, you need to be massively better. 
And one of the challenges that I've noticed, particularly in our field, I don't know how true this is in every single field, but particularly in our field, it tends to be the case that folks evaluate software within the first few days that it came out. Uh, two weeks ago, I launched a new tool for cured research, something I've been working on with a team at Moz for about a year, and I was, I'm actually very proud of it, which is extreme, if you know me, extremely unusual for me. I, I usually hate even things that we build. I just hate them less than other things. Uh, but, but this product I thought was pretty good. And uh, you could see, I'll, I'll put some of the traffic metrics in there, but you could see you know, that within five days after launch, uh, something over 50,000 people had tried this product. Holy moly, right? That, that's a huge percent of the market that is trying the product. I don't know if it's 2% or 5%, but a significant percent of the market is trying the product within the first few days, and they're going to determine, their, their attitude about that product is going to determine how they feel about it and how they amplify it and what they say about it for months, if not years to come. And you could make that product massively better in the next six months, but if they don't come back, if they weren't tempted by your first effort, you are out of luck. This, this has been my experience and, and one of the big things that I feel like I've, I've learned and would change about a lot of the launches that we've done over the years at Moz. And certainly, you know, someday I hope to be able to do another company, uh, do another startup, and, and that would be something I'd carry with me. Number six, this is a tough one. Uh, I, I do not harbor any ill will against anyone that Moz has, has hired. I think that, by and large, we have done really good hiring, brought on great people. Uh, but I think for a few years, particularly after our second funding, when Brad invested in 2012, uh, he and Foundry put another $15 million into the business, and Ignition added three in, so he raised about 18. Um, at that time, we felt this artificial need to grow faster than what we actually needed to do. I think what we should have done, e even probably a few years before that, I would have hired less people, I would have built fewer things, and I would have focused more on just a couple of them. Uh, there's a great quote that I love from Bill Gurley, who's one of the uh, chief investors uh, of venture capital partners at Benchmark um, down on Sand Hill Road. I, I, although I do love Sand Hill Lane. Uh, I kind of want to. I kind of want to rename the, the street. Uh, but so so Bill says, startups don't die from starvation; they die from indigestion. They die from doing too much. And I think Moz, certainly at the riskiest times in our history, was on the verge of, you know, having these these catastrophic scenarios when we tried to do too much. Number seven, I. I wish that I could go back in time to 2006, 2007, 2008, particularly in those very early years, and hire fewer people, but more experienced and higher paid individuals. We, you know, I think I felt that artificial constraint of, well, we only have a million dollars in funding, and we really need you know, four engineers and three marketing people and this many folks, so here's what we can afford to pay with the staff that we require. And that, that, that was a false, uh, pressure that I was feeling. We didn't need to hire that many people. We could hire three fewer of those people and pay in the, at the time we were paying maybe in the 40th percentile. Now Moz is paying you know, over the 60th, 70th, uh, often into the 80th, even 90th percentile. 
But I would go back in time and hire in this 75th to 90th percentile uh, pretty universally. This has gotten much harder for those of you who aren't familiar with Seattle. Uh, Google has their second largest engineering office there. Uh, Amazon obviously employs something like 10% of the town uh, directly or indirectly. Microsoft obviously is huge in the Seattle area, a number of other companies. And so this is, this is getting a little out of hand uh, in our region, but that's okay. Number eight. This, uh, this is a birthday present that Geraldine made me out of clay. That's Roger Mosbach. He's our little uh, robot. For most of you who are familiar with Roger know that on the back, he's got a little toggle. And the toggle is between hugs and destroy. Uh, we have the toggle permanently glued to hugs, don't worry. But this, this little guy has an alternate version. Uh, he's the only existing alternate version of Roger. And uh, as Geraldine notes, he's not edible. Moz is incredibly special to me. Um, it's a huge part of who I am and, and my identity, personally and professionally. It's uh, a huge part of my relationships with uh, you know, hundreds of people that I know and dozens of my closest friends. Um, it's been a labor of love my entire adult life. Right? Um, I basically dropped out of college and have worked at only this one company with the exception of, in college, I worked at a couple of retail jobs. But um, even so, in, at the beginning of 2011, I remember I was at a, uh, at a conference. And the CEO of a larger software company sat down with me that morning and said, Rand, we want to buy Moz. And they made a very nice offer. I, I'm going to, I'll give you the number, but let's keep it between us rather than tweet it. Uh, so at the time, Moz had done, I think it was the, the year we had done 5.7 million in revenue and we're trending to 11.4, uh, right? So we were, we were getting ready to double again. And the offer was for $40 million. It was half, uh, half cash and half stock. Um, and this company's stock has since done quite well. So that, that would have been a much larger offer. Uh, at that time, Geraldine and I owned about 35, 36% of the company. Uh, to give you a sense, today we, you know, obviously a few rounds of, uh, well, a couple rounds of funding and uh, some dilution from expanding the option pool, which is, you know, the stock options that you give out to employees uh, over the years, means that today we hold about, I think it's around 18%, 18 or 19%. So, approximately half of, of what we did at that time. Uh, that, that would have been a great financial exit, but it also would have been a really great company to work for, it turns out. And uh, I think despite all the, all the love and care that I have for Moz, uh, I, I really believe that this is not, you know, you're, you don't just have one time that you can do this in life, right? I have, I hope, decades of more productivity, decades more that I can contribute to the world of marketing and the world of software and the opportunity to do this again. Um, but I don't know when or if we'll, we'll get an offer like that. Um, 
It's tough to say. I mean, Sarah is very hopeful that Moz can someday have an IPO, but that has an intense amount of requirements around it, as, as you're probably aware. Um, you know, American public markets are, are not very forgiving, especially recently with, with software as a service firms. So despite all my love for Moz, I, I wish I could go back in time and tell myself, Rand, take the deal. <laughs> take the deal. Uh, I can't tell you, I, I think one of, the, one of the worst parts is staying up nights. When, you, when you're having you know, intense stress, especially over the last five, six years, um, and thinking, man, man, I, I could have been out of this, right? <laughs> not out of this, but at least not, not stressed about it, right? Even if I were still working at Moz at that company and they kept the brand and all those things. All right. Let's get past the tough parts and into some things that I would keep the same. I, I bet you can probably guess what's on the first slide. It's Gerald. <laughs> this is actually taken in uh, Southwest Ireland. Uh, last was that last October, we were here with our friends uh, Will and Nora and their their <laughs> tiny son uh, Rio. Actually, I, I have a little bit of time, so I'm going to tell you a hilarious but slightly non-PC. Uh, story. So Will, are most of you are familiar with Will Reynolds from C Interactive, uh, tall, good-looking black guy from Philadelphia, runs uh, this company, Sear. He and I actually traded companies for a week a few years ago. I, I ran Sear as their CEO for a week. He ran Moz as Moz's CEO for a week. We answered each other's emails. We lived at each other's houses. I took care of his dog. Uh, it, was, it was a great week. Like, I, except for the fact that he wakes up at 6 a.m. Eastern time, which is not, not good for me. Uh, and, and so Will and Norway, we went out to this, uh, stayed at this fancy hotel in Cork um, in Ireland, and uh, Will is at the bar late one night. He, he's he's going to let me tell this story, right? He won't kill me for it? I think he's good. Okay, I think, hopefully I'm good. So he's, um, are you ready for a bad Irish accent too? <laughs> Sorry. So Will's talking to the, the, the barman, and uh, the barman says, well, well, what brings you to Ireland? And, and, and Will says, well, you know, my, uh, my, wife, my wife is actually Irish, and, you know, she wanted to see, oh, what's, what's your wife's name then? Nora Morrissey. Nora Morrissey, that's a good Irish name. Well, what's the matter? You couldn't find yourself a nice black girl back in America. <laughs> I, totally well-meaning barman, but... Oy vey. Uh, so we, we had a great, I mean, we've had a number of great trips around Ireland, but uh, Geraldine has been absolutely the rock of my life. I, you know, um, I had a very, have a very contentious and tough relationship with my parents, particularly following some of the things that have happened uh, around Moz, and obviously I would generally recommend not starting a uh, software company with your parents. Um, <laughs> it's not, a, not an ideal, not an ideal uh, scenario. I think actually, you know, uh, mom and son founders are pretty much the most uncommon pair of software, uh, software founders that you can find. Uh, one of the things I didn't tell you, so we were $500,000 in debt, right, in 2005, early 2005, and one of the smart things that you can do that you know, the United States is very good about is you can declare bankruptcy and then just kind of start from scratch, right? We didn't, 
we could change the company name and do whatever. It wasn't even called SEO Moz at the time. It was incorporated as a company called Outlines West, the one my mom had started in, in 1981. The only reason we didn't declare bankruptcy is because then my dad would find out. <laughs> we never told him we had any debt. We never told him we had any debt. Anytime he would, you know, he would occasionally get upset that my mom wasn't making enough money and she'd bring home a paycheck, even though she couldn't afford to. She'd bring home a paycheck off of a credit card that we should have paid off. It, it was insane, right? Just, just terrible stuff. So you can imagine, uh, I, I heard from my little brother, uh, Evan, that my dad found out a few years ago about the debt, apparently from a talk I gave. <laughs> just, uh, <laughs> and uh, I heard that night did not go well. That was not a great night. Uh, Really glad that, that we were already on not speaking terms at that time. Um, if you're wondering where transparency comes from, this is where it comes from, right? When you're keeping secrets that are that big and that deep around something so important and so critical to your family, you know, I, I, I just, I think I got intrinsically trained to hate secrecy. Uh, and that, that's why I care so much about transparency. Number two. Uh, we can, if during the break, if during the break you'd like to hear more about how great Geraldine is, uh, you can direct your questions at either of us. It's, it's, I'm glad you came, honey. Um, so secondly, uh, related, many of you are might be familiar with our core values, what Moz calls our tag fee code. These are six... Uh, letters that represent the core values that we hold to be more important than growing and making money. Right? We put them ahead of, uh, of making money. I'll give you an example of that. So uh, one of the core values, in fact, the one that we, we place highest in the order of operations is empathy. And most of you are probably familiar with how a software as a service subscription works, right? You sign up online, you put in your credit card. A friend of mine, uh, Rob Boosby from, from Distilled, said, hey, you know, we were, uh, we were working with a client, and uh, they have a subscription business very similar to Moz's, not in the same uh, realm, right, not in the same industry, but similar financial model, business model. And one of the things they did that massively decreased their churn, like dropped it off a cliff, is they took away the cancellation button, right? So you can't just go online and click cancel, and then your account's done, and you don't get charged anymore. They, give, they put a phone number. They said, you know, give us a call, uh, and you can cancel any time. Just, just call. And they had 24-hour service, right? You could call them any time. And Rob said that that dropped their turn, cut it almost in half when they implemented this phone number. And they learned a lot more about their customers who were canceling. And Rob said to me, why, Rand? Why don't you do this at Moz? And I said, because I hate that. I hate feeling like I can't just go online and click the cancel button. And I don't want to do that to anyone else. I feel like that's wrong. I feel like that's a bad way to create more money for, for me and less for you because it, it's that pain of making a phone call. It doesn't feel right. And that's what we mean by core values. I think a lot of folks, when they, especially in the Silicon Valley startup world, when they talk about company culture, what they really mean is, or what they're trying to say, unfortunately, is I want to hire people who are just like me, people who I want to be friends with, people who also like Star Trek and lacrosse. Uh, 
And that's not what we mean at Moz, right? When I say company culture, and when I'm talking about startup culture, what I mean is, why do you hire someone? Why do you fire them? Why do you promote them? What do you believe is more important than growth and making more money? That to me is culture. That's core values, that's what TagFee is. Uh, by the way, the author of TagFee, the person who wrote it and came up with it, and you can imagine there are a lot of ways to restructure these letters into far less optimal uh, phrases, was Geraldine. Number three, we have a concept at Moz um, that I'm actually very proud of. We, we, we took it from uh, Microsoft and Google who do this, but only for engineers. They basically have two tracks by which you can advance your career. Um, Mark, could I bug you for a water? Sure. Thank you so much. Uh, so the first one is the individual contributor track. And probably many of you have worked at places and, and, and said to yourself, gosh, I love doing my job. I love doing the work. Thank you kindly. But I really dislike managing people, right? I dislike having to be responsible for them and sort of like growing a career and working on uh, um, you know, political elements and how people work together and saying, well, have you had a conversation with this person that you have a conflict with, which is, in my experience, about 80% of HR. Have you talked to them? Uh, <laughs> And, and the answer, no, well, I think that's a good starting point, right? Um, and one of the things that I love at Moz, and you can see this kind of in the, uh, the salary numbers and the, the stock option numbers, is that at each level, these are equivalent. So if you're an individual contributor, let's say that you are someone who's on our customer service team. And so maybe you're you know, in a very junior role, and you love doing the work, but you don't want to manage people. We have folks who are on our customer service team who I think are at uh, either this one or this one, right? And they are making as much as mid-level managers on their own team. Uh, I, in fact, when I stepped down from being CEO, became an individual contributor. You know, I'm at a nice high level over here, and I make up, well, not quite as much, but almost as much as my boss. If I didn't own as much stock as I did, I'd probably be you know, very commensurate. Uh, with the guy I report to, um, who, which, funny story, longtime friend of mine and uh, you know, guy I hired, it's been with the company for a long time, but I love this. I urge every company I talk to, startup, mid-size, big company, I don't care. If you can implement this, you can change how people are invested in their careers at your company. You really can, because suddenly it becomes not the case that management is the only way up. And management shouldn't be the only way up. You should be able to get great at the work that you do and advance in the same fashion. This is a strong belief of mine. This is something I would do again. Number four, one of the things that Moz did really well by accident was we built up our marketing first. We built up the audience we needed to reach before we ever released our product. Right, for, for what? Uh, from 2003 to 2007, five nights a week, Sunday through Thursday, I blogged from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m and put out a post every night, and that built up our audience through what we didn't call content marketing yet, but today would, that building up of the audience before we launched a product was hugely helpful. And it's something I would do again in my next company. So if you see me you know, start a new blog, you might guess, Rand's probably gonna eventually do a product in this space. 
Number five, I mentioned to you that CEO swap that I did where I, I went and you know, was the CEO of, of, of this agency, Sierra Interactive, and sat down with their clients and with their team and learned all their practices. That's something I found incredibly valuable, not just to um, dog food our own product, which I think many startups do, and it's very common advice, but to actually live our customers' lives. And one of the big ways that I do that is I go to a lot of marketing conferences and events, and I spend a ton of time talking to professional SEOs and marketers. I, I had a conversation uh, this morning with someone about Keyword Explorer. Wait, sorry, I know you're in here. You have a great beard. British guy, yes, hi, how's it going? Sorry, what was your name? Mike. Mike, right. So, you know, Mike and I are chatting about Keyword Explorer and, you know, which volume numbers we should use and well, what he used to use in Excel and VLOOKUPs to try and order things, right? Like, that's awesome. I, I love that. That's, that's one of the things I'm most passionate about. I would do it again every company I ever get to be a part of. This is, by the way, at, uh, at Will's house. He's got one of his walls chalkboarded and then he, he writes all the things that he wants to do that week. He made a list for me when I, when I went and lived there. And number six, this is, this is actually surprising because my hope is that if I, if I ever get to do another company, you know, years down the line, I probably would not raise money again, but I'm very glad that I did it once. And the reason is I think that uh, outside capital made me a vastly better entrepreneur, a much more uh, aware entrepreneur of, of the ecosystem, of the demands that are on venture-backed companies, of the difference between you know, a, what's pejoratively, unfortunately, called a lifestyle business versus a you know, venture-backed growth business. And I think that distinction, by the way, is uh, a word that I won't use here. But I found it very valuable to be on both sides of that. I think that, that that's sort of universally true for me, that, that having those experiences on both sides is is really useful. This is uh, the day that Brad funded us. Did, for those of you in the back, uh, did you get our money yet? I heard a rumor it was sent. And I replied, already stocking up on caviar and panda meat. <laughs> Ew, panda meat. All right. Uh, one of the other things that I would do, <laughs> I know, Google, come on, be a little kinder there. Uh, one of the other things that I really liked doing was picking a field that other entrepreneurs, other, that, that many venture capitalists and many investors have avoided. You know, I, I would estimate that the market for uh, SEO software and for organic traffic growth software in the United States is a, a couple of billion dollars today and probably has more room to grow, and yet it's garnered very, very small amounts of investment because a lot of investors are scared of how Google might operate in that space and the risk around it. They're scared of the perception around the market, right? As you can see, that SEO has been dead every year for you know, almost 20 years now, despite people searching more and more. So, uh, all of those, I, I really, all of those aspects of a field that other people avoid, I really like. That's probably one of the reasons that the second E in tag fee is the exception. All right, last bit, these five things that I don't yet know the answer to. First one, uh, a couple years ago we were at a board meeting. Sarah had been trying to formulate her thesis around where she wanted to take the business and one of those, one of the, those theses was we should try having multiple products rather than just a singular 
product. So most folks who are familiar, familiar with Moz are familiar with probably one of our two products, which is Moz Pro, that's the SEO product, or Moz Local, which is the one for local small businesses, which I think only works in uh, the UK and US right now. And we've actually got five products now, but historically we only had one. And one product, there are a lot of beautiful things about having only one product in your company. Because all the branding that you do, all the traffic that you get, all the attention that you earn can be funneled into that one single product. People have an association with what it is that you do, right? We don't know P&G, but we know Colgate, and we know Kleenex, and we know, you know 500 other consumer products that they, they own. And I don't know yet whether the multi-product strategy is going to be something that's very successful for us and something I would replicate, or whether in a few years I hope to stand on stage in front of you and you know, be able to say, well, maybe that didn't work. We'll see. Number two, I, I also have a lot of self-doubt about whether early in my career I got lucky with a couple of the products that I built, you know, sort of built, when I say built, I mean kind of like designed what they should do and how they should work with, with the product and engineering and design teams who did the real work of building these things. Um, or whether maybe I'm good at this. And I think we'll, you know, we'll get to find that out. One of the, you know, one of the interesting things about being an employee at your own company is that you suddenly take on all of this risk. Um, it, it sounds odd to say, but uh, Keyword Explorer, right, that product that I launched, if it doesn't end up doing well, chances are good Sarah will not ask me to design any more products. She'll be like, you go do marketing. You're great at marketing, you're great at content, but you know what? We'll, We'll let other people design products. If it does well, maybe I'll get to build some more. Um, we'll find out. And I don't know. That will also tell me whether in my next company I should be the person to design what the product does or someone else should. Number three, this is an incredible resource. Uh, this is a comparison of SaaS and self-service, uh, sorry, self-service and enterprise SaaS businesses. Um, I'll, I'll give you the URL in just a sec so you can go there. It's basically created by a guy who, I think his name's Nathan Lotzka, and he, he runs a bunch of podcasts with uh, CEOs of, and founders of companies, and then he puts all of the numbers that they share with him into this spreadsheet. So you can see in a Google spreadsheet how all of these companies compare to each other. And I find this fascinating, right? This is the monthly recurring revenue, gross monthly churn. So there you can see, you know, I put in uh, our churn and our MRR, and there's Aweber, and there's Unbounce, and Yesware, and Buffer, and Lead Genius, and dozens and dozens of companies. You can see how you compare. One of the interesting things is virtually every one of these companies that's enterprise SaaS, meaning that they have salespeople who sign you up, right, and then you enter into a contract, they have very low monthly churn rates. Some of them even have, where is it, negative, negative monthly churn which means people are basically buying more of the product faster than they quit. That's, that is an awesome superpower in the SaaS world. That kind, you will get crazy amazing valuations and you know, pricing and all that kind of stuff from investors and from companies who might offer to buy you. And Moz is on the high end here, right? High end of the churn curve uh, for where we're at. This URL, by the way, I, I put it in bit.ly because it's a long Google Doc URL, but you can get it at bit.ly slash list. If you want to compare how your company or a company you're interested in is doing, you can get it there. 
Number four, uh, this was taken at, uh, at Christmas last year. We went down to Portland, spent some time. This is uh, Matt Brown, one of the two guys that we acquired when we bought AudienceWise, and that's David Mim. Uh, we basically buy all our companies in Portland because they have the best food, and it's the most fun place to visit. Um, and it's only three hours from Seattle, uh, so it, it's terrific. Uh, I don't know, however, you know, we've done five acquisitions to date. Uh, three of them were very small, what I consider very small. Two of them were a little more sizable. Um, and, you know, a little more sizable, I'd put in the very low seven figures, and the other ones were, were below that in the six-figure range. Uh, I don't know whether acquisitions are a great way for a company like Moz to grow. We would generally be considered right about the stage where we should start considering them now, and we were doing acquisitions when we were close to, closer to the 11, 21 million dollar range. So pretty aggressive early on with an acquisition strategy. I, I think Moz Local, which was uh, the, the product and the company that David built, um, has been a very, very successful one. I think that'll prove to be a, a good choice. And the last thing I'll talk about before we hopefully have a little bit of time for Q&A is I'm not sure that if I were to do another company, I would make it as incredibly deeply personal. That has been an immense mental and emotional challenge for me, and I think something that uh, you know, has affected me much more deeply than I expected or considered making Moz a part of who I am and a part of my identity, particularly, you know, especially when you're not the CEO anymore and you can't sort of you know, control all the aspects of it um, and you, you feel like your own destiny is in someone else's hands. Even though Sarah is one of my closest friends, she was the officiant at, at Geraldine and I's wedding. Uh, we have known her since 2002 or three um, and, and been very close with her. And still, there's a lot of, a lot of nervousness and pensiveness um, I obviously have, have felt tremendous amounts of regret and pain going through this process. Um, and I'm not, I'm not entirely sure whether I would do that again. It's also really tough to tie one's personal identity to a company's brand identity. Let's say that I got really tired or really sick or needed to do something else, right? Take care of, you know, sick family member or, you know, something with Geraldine or whatever it was. Could I step away from Moz and have that company do as well? Would, would there be a lot of institutional risk around that? That's a, that's a scary thing, right? This is, this is the stuff that I think about when I can't sleep. I'm gonna make a recommendation. I think that no matter what you're doing in your professional career, I found this exercise incredibly valuable. And Mark, thank you for that. I urge you to make your own three lists what you'd change, what you'd keep the same, and what you don't yet know. I think this exercise is worthwhile for all of us. Thank you very much. I have a hug before some questions. Wow, um, thank you. Questions, you know the order? Right, so Jonathan over there. Who's first? Right, go. Hi. Hi. Um, having been depressed from running a business myself too, and Sorry. not making money, but um, did the depression part. What have you? <laughs> <laughs> well, now you're making me feel bad. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. Um, what have you changed to avoid 
doing the same mistakes again? Yeah. Uh, so uh, in particular, I assume you're asking in particular around depression and managing your own mental behavior. Yeah, behavior and stability. A few things have been pretty helpful for me. One of the biggest, um, and this is, I have no association or affiliation with this company, but this little thing on my wrist, the Fitbit, uh, the two biggest things that it's done for me are force me to be, well, encourage me very strongly to be more active than I had been historically, which I think is actually has a direct positive effect on my psyche. And the second is it uh, helps me get more sleep. When I see that, my, you know, that I haven't gotten seven and a half or eight hours of sleep in a night, the next night or the night after, I make up for it. I, work, I actually work actively, proactively, to make up for sleep. Uh, and those two things have been big. Another one uh, certainly was therapy. I did do, um, I worked with a couple different therapists, uh, both of them, both of whom also had professional coaching backgrounds, which I found really helpful as you know, an entrepreneur and business person to have someone with context um, and not just kind of a, a pure therapy background. Um, and then I think the other thing, uh, Geraldine and I implemented something called anti-work night. So once a week, uh, starting at 7 p.m. until I go to sleep, I, I don't work at all, which is, that's pretty unusual for me. Even on weekends, I'm usually working, you know, all day, every day, uh, and that, that has been nice. So those are, those are a handful. Can I just add to that? We had a fantastic talk about developers and entrepreneurs and depression at Boss yeah. three years ago or something. Um, I tweeted out the link to it. It's... Uh, by a guy called Greg Bogus, who was fantastic. It is the funniest talk about depression you will ever, ever see. Um, yeah. Um, so well, I, I put it out on the Boss 2016 hashtag. Very important. One over, Jonathan. So you mentioned one of the things you don't know yet is uh, the making work personal thing. What would you do to achieve that? Because you're, even your personality, you seem such like an engaging person. How in the world? Could you do that? Yeah, I think uh, that that's a very fair question. Uh, and that, that is a challenge. I think there are two things that help disconnect that. Uh, one is not having your personal finances exclusively uh, reliant on that business. I think that's, that's certainly helpful. Uh, and then the second thing is having co-founders. You know, I, I'm going to say I think Nick's advice is very smart if you want to maximize your potential return. Uh, but I would take my advice if you're trying to <laughs> uh, disconnect your personal self from the brand or from being the only thing connected with the brand. And that is to have, you know, uh, very involved, passionate, committed, helpful co-founder uh, or two. And one of the other things I'll say about co-founders is that it is totally reasonable, and I, I know many folks who will found a company, have two or three or four co-founders with them, and those folks will have, you know, four, five, six percent of the company, not 50 percent, or, you know, three of you at 33 percent, those kinds of things. So that's, that's also an option uh, for entrepreneurs. At the back. Hi. Um, hi. Uh, at the uh, dawn of um, artificial intelligence, um, is SEO dead? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so... Uh, I'll say this about SEO. So uh, 
every, I would say every year, there are many, many prognosticators saying that it said, I, I think SEO will never die until and unless search dies, right? Because there will always be ways to optimize whether the algorithm is controlled by a machine or whether it's controlled by a set of engineers, doesn't really matter. Uh, artificial intelligence merely means that a machine learning system will identify the you know, ranking inputs that are best correlated with the most relevant, highly clicked results, and that you have to, as a marketer, right, or a search engine optimization professional, identify what those are uh, and be able to influence that, right? Just like an advertising person would need to be able to identify whatever learning processes go on in the human or elephant brain and be able to optimize towards those. Uh, if you believe search might die someday, I think it's reasonable to believe that SEO might die someday. If you think it's likely that humanity will continue searching and search has grown, you know, number of searches have grown, number of searches per searcher have grown, uh, and the number of visits sent by search has grown. So I would suspect we, we have a long, healthy life left still. Daniel. Hi, Rand. You mentioned conferences as a way to get closer to your customers and live their lives. I love yeah. this idea. Do you have any other cool ideas how um, you can have a more a direct sort of idea what their lives are actually like. I, I love that CEO swap thing. I, I mean, it's a very weird type of experiment, and certainly, you know, it's a little bit, um, well, more than unusual. I think it, it had almost a PR characteristic to it, right? But it was very deeply powerful, right? And deeply affecting for both Will and I, and, and brought us closer together as friends, and brought me closer together with all the people at Sear, and Will closer together with the people at Moz. Uh, you don't have to do that on a CEO to CEO basis, right? You have the freedom to say, hey, if you're in the healthcare industry, can you go work at a, as a healthcare professional for a day or a week? Can you follow somewhere, someone around? Uh, can you interview lots of them? I, I think these things are all possible, but I, I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Hi, <laughs> hi, Rand. Um, I thought it was time we had a female voice anyway amongst the questions. I, I <laughs> no. appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm kidding, really. But I do want to ask you, um, you, you started business with your mum. I, I gather that, you know, may not have been the best thing ever, but it still resulted in Moz. Um, and your COO, who became your CEO, was a woman, et cetera. Yes, so yes. You, you and clearly my first investor was a woman. And our board of directors has more women than men, so yeah. And Brad Feld and is a big supporter of the founders. Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by your background, and I know you have a feminist in your Twitter bio Absolutely. as well. Um, so I just want to ask you, you know, do you think that that's a positive for businesses? You know, if you're talking about enterprises starting out, if you end up with a, a room full of bros, full stop, is, you know, that, is that a good thing if you're designing products for a male and female audience, as most people are now? Yeah, I, so I am, I'm a huge believer in diversity in general, and I think the nice thing is uh, you don't have to merely be a believer in the moral and ethical side of it, which hopefully everyone already is, um, except for the 19% of the, sorry, the 35% of the 19% of the 40%, but we'll ignore that. Uh, I, I would say that uh, the statistics are also on your side. Right? So boards of directors of public companies that have uh, more diversity in them, both uh, um, male-female uh, gender diversity as well as uh, ethnic diversity and background diversity outperform their non-diverse uh, competitors significantly. 
that's true in private companies, in valuation and money raised. Uh, it's also true in uh, the performance of uh, mutual funds and fund managers, right? Um, uh, and uh, what are those called? You know, the ones that brought down the economy in 2008. Uh, derivatives. Sorry? Derivatives? Derivatives, no, not. CDOs. Well, CDOs. Yeah, the, the group, hedge funds. Hedge funds, right? So like, even, even in you know, a, a field that is very white dude-centric, uh, you, you find that the ones that have more diversity outperform. And I think that's, that's very natural, right? That, that makes a lot of sense. When you are able to see more perspectives, when you uh, have, if you've ever been in a room with, I'm gonna say, you know, I'm gonna stereotype a little bit and say like five young male engineers, you will notice that the behavior is, uh, can get quite crass. And if you add even one or two women into the mix, or someone who's older, uh, or someone from a different background who maybe uh, English is their second language, those kinds of things, suddenly that environment gets more professional, more adult, right? And I think that uh, that, that tends to predict better results. So it's not, I don't think it's particularly surprising. That is all we've got time for, I'm afraid. But um, they do say behind every successful person is an astonished partner. Um, in this particular instance, I'd like to invite you up to um, take the applause um, with Rand, because you're clearly a very big part of what you're doing. So get up here, Jeremy. Come on. Come on. I know. Thank <laughs> you.